you for joining us today here at Victory. At Victory Church, we are a community of authentic, spirit-led Christ followers transformed to walk in victory. Join us as we begin today's message. Um, yes. I love you guys so much. I want you to know that. I love you so much. And, and, and I consider it an incredible honor to be a part of this church family. Um, and I love worshiping with you guys because I know that I'm surrounded by people that love Jesus. And it's genuine. Love Jesus and love each other. A bunch of you know, broken people, including myself, that love him so much and know that we need him so desperately. So I just want you to know that, um, that I love you guys so much. And, and um, if you're just now joining us, if you're here for the first time, we've actually been in the Comfort Shatterer series for a few weeks. And, and through this series... Um, we've been getting back to some of the basics, basic, some of the basic fundamentals of our faith. I really dive into some of the, the hard teachings of Jesus. And a lot of times what happens is these hard teachings of Jesus, they're completely either overlooked, skimmed past, or just forgotten altogether because they require us to step outside of our comfort zones where we're no longer the ones that are in control of our lives. Instead, Jesus is the one that's in control and navigating the course and the direction of our lives. So it's a very challenging thing. We're, we're people that like to be in control. We, like, we don't like to give up control. We want to stay in our comfort zones. So it's very challenging. Some of these hard teachings of Jesus that we've been diving into in this series, they really are very hard teachings, and they do challenge us to step out of those comfort zones. And as we wrap this series up, we're going to be wrapping it up today, we're going to be diving into another comfort-shattering teaching of Jesus where he really challenges us to step outside of our comfort zone in a way that even makes our enemies just stop in amazement. And the big idea that we're going to be see surfaced like through the, the text that we're going to be diving into today is this, that Jesus calls us to love without limits. That's our big idea today. Jesus calls us to love without limits. And if we truly want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then showing limitless love to other people around us really is a requirement because Jesus first loved us without limits. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be called your son, for the opportunity that we have to be called your children. I thank you so much for the gospel. I thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. I pray that you help us to never get past that as we're diving into your word, even today that we, we see your gospel shining through. And I pray for those of us that already, that know the gospel, that have responded to this gospel, that we don't just leave here, we don't just stay the same, that we leave here changed and transformed on fire for you. And I pray that you help us to dive into this text in a fresh new way. Help us to, help us to see it in a fresh new way. And I pray if there's anybody here that's never responded to the gospel, if there's anybody here that does not know you, I pray that you would open their heart, that you would open their mind, and that you would help them. First, you would confront them with your truth, and that you would help them to respond. I pray for salvation, the gift and the miracle of salvation today. Father, we thank you so much. Holy Spirit, I pray that you, you flood this place, that you take over this sermon, that you, you use me, a broken, sinful vessel that is in desperate need of you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So just a heads up, if you see me kind of hobbling around a little bit, I, I uh, actually stepped on a nail yesterday, so it feels great. Um, but uh, it, it's okay, though. Um, 
So we're gonna, if you got your Bible, we're gonna be in Luke chapter 10 today. So if you got your Bible, go ahead and break it open. Luke 10, we'll have it up on the screen if you don't have the Bible. But what we're gonna, uh, if you, I would encourage you to bring it, but we do have it up on the screen. So what we're gonna do, we're gonna be stepping into a scene with Jesus where he is gonna be challenged and confronted with one of the most, one of the most challenging questions that anybody could ever be asked. But then as he's challenged with this question, what we're gonna see is Jesus not only meets this challenge, but he flips this challenge upside down on its head and he shatters the comfort zone of everybody that was there, everybody that heard this conversation that Jesus had and this story that Jesus told. But not only in that scene did this happen, but also the ripple effects of the conversation that Jesus had, the story that he told are still shattering comfort zones even to this day, a couple thousand Years later. So let's check this out. We're going to dive into Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25, which says that an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So I want to pause right there in this scene. Before we go any further, I want to make sure we don't just skim past this, just so we can understand kind of the picture and the scene that's being painted here. So, first off, in this text, we see we're introduced to this man that's called an expert in the law. And he's called an expert in the law because he's just that. He is an expert in the law. This guy knows the law better than most anybody else around. He has tons of it memorized. But then on top of that, he's also a teacher of the law. So he's an expert in the law. He teaches um, the law. But here's the thing. We're going we're gonna to see a few things through this guy. One of the things that we're going to see is just because you know the law extremely well. It's talking about the Mosaic law. Just because you know the law extremely well, just because you know the Bible extremely well, does not mean, hear me on this, it does not mean that your heart it is in the right place. Because the truth is, guys, like we could, we could read the Bible every single day. We could memorize tons of the Bible, have, have a lot of it memorized, be able to repeat it, but that we could still, even through that, miss the entire point, which is the truth of the gospel. And the point of the gospel is to transform your heart, to change your life, and to point us back in the direction of God. And so this man, who is an expert in the law, knows more about Scripture than most anybody else around. He still, even through all of his knowledge of the law, completely misses the whole point. He completely misses the whole point. And so in this scene, Jesus is teaching. This guy is sitting there, and at some point this dude stands up and he asks Jesus this extremely challenging question. And this is the question that he asks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? And don't miss those words. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So in other words, this this expert in the law, he wants to go back to the law. He wants to be able to use the law to be able to try to find some kind of a recipe to essentially save himself. He's essentially saying, okay, Jesus, what's the formula, what's the recipe that I can put together using this law so that I can essentially save myself? And guys, this this same mindset is something that we still struggle with even today, a couple thousand years later. It's this mindset that says, hey, you know what? If I go to church enough, if I pray enough, if I pray the right prayers, right, if I can speak uh, Christianese, and, and essentially if I can look good enough on the outside, and, and it's almost like, you know, the spiritual bling, if I can look good on the outside, then what I can do is eventually I can impress the God of the universe, right? Because that makes total sense, that we can impress the God of the universe with our actions and with the things that we do, right? I mean, like, like, think about it like this. Like, if you were the God of the universe, you created the universe and everything in it, and you're standing back, you see the entire universe, and you see all these tons of galaxies. And then all these tons of galaxies, you see this tiny little speck of a galaxy called the Milky Way. And in that tiny little speck of a galaxy called the Milky Way, you see this tiny little speck of a planet 
called the earth that nobody else can see except for you because you're God. And then on this tiny little speck of a planet called earth, you see this tiny little speck of a person called, you know, spiritual Steve, we'll call him, right? And so spiritual Steve on this tiny little speck of a planet is walking around. He comes up in this church thinking he's all big and bad. He's got his nice little, you know, really nice suit on, big old cross, gold-plated cross that's as big as his entire chest. He comes in carrying a big old leather-bound Bible because that's what Jesus carried around and Paul and Peter and all those guys because that's what you should do. And so he carries this big old Bible in, as big as his lap. He helps a couple of people, even holds the door for someone, puts some offering in the offering plate. And so if you're the God of the universe looking at this tiny little speck of a galaxy, tiny little speck of a planet, tiny little speck of a person, you're going to be like, wow, you just blew my mind with that, man. I have seen all kinds of things, the universe, everything in it, but I've never seen anything like that. That's incredible. That makes a lot of sense, right? No, that's, I mean, like, if we stop to think about it, do you know how ridiculous that sounds? That's crazy. But the sad reality is that is the mentality, that same kind of mentality that so many of us take on. We take on this mentality and we think that we can impress the God of the universe. And what we're essentially doing when we take on that mentality is we're essentially thinking that we can somehow save ourselves. And what we're telling God is like, hey, God, I don't really need you. You know, I mean, if you could tell me what to do, if you can, I mean, your Bible's just like a self-help book anyways, right? By the way, it's not, it's not a self-help book. But, you know, this mentality, thinking this, the Bible's just a self-help book, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at this, and I'm going to try to figure out the recipe that's in this, in this book so that I can do the right thing so that I can save myself. And that's this kind of crazy mentality that we end up taking on, thinking that we can save ourselves. It's like, God, hey, I got this. Don't worry about it. I can do this on my own. But here's the thing. Religion isn't the only way that we try to save ourselves, though, is it? Oftentimes, we can kind of swing to the far right, and we think, well, you know what? It's not the right prayers. It's not, it's not going to church all the time. It's not, you know, being like saying the Christian knees and all these other things that are going to save you. Like, no, that's not it. But what about the other side? What about the far left side, where so often we try to save ourselves through, through worldly things? And it could be people that aren't Christians, aren't religious at all, or sometimes it is people that are Christians. And we try to save ourselves through worldly means. And it might be drugs. It might be thinking, man, you know, I am struggling so bad. I just need something to get by. I, like, you don't understand. I'm really struggling with this. I, I, you know, I, I, I need something to be able to help me cope. So I'm just going to use this drug. I'm going to take this drug because I need this to be able to help me cope. Or, 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 you know, I, I need to drink this, this I'm going to keep on chasing this bottle, keep on drinking this alcohol, because I need something to be able to take the pain away. And that's something that I struggled a lot when I was struggling with PTSD and different things, just trying to chase a bottle, thinking that's somehow going to help me, that's going to help my, take my pain away, and it never did. It kept getting worse and worse and worse, along with the PTSD that I struggled with. And sometimes it could be other things, maybe it's power or money, that's going to make me happy if I have enough power. Keep on chasing, keep on chasing the money. Relationships. We use other people. And we, we, a lot of times it can be even a spouse. Where we look at a person in a relationship, a girlfriend, boyfriend, a spouse, and we're like, this person right here, this, this person is supposed to complete me. This person is supposed to help me, almost like my savior, even though I may not want to say it, that's how I'm acting. And, and you know, hopefully they won't ever do anything to hurt me or, or, or say the wrong thing. And they'll meet all of my needs because if they don't, if they hurt me somehow, then my world would be completely shattered. There's all kinds 
of different things that we do. And what we're, we're, we're trying to put these things on a pedestal in the place of God. What we do is we try to take these things, whether it's a thing or a person, and we're essentially trying to swap Jesus out with that thing by putting it on a pedestal in his place. And guys, I am convinced, I'm convinced that there are more makeshift functional saviors, like little g fake false gods out there, than there are words to describe them. I mean, a lot of times we'll think about these things, I just give examples of relationship, money, power, sex. It's anything and everything. I mean, honestly, it could be your cell phone. It could be Netflix. It could be the clothes you wear. It could even, a lot of times, it's us. That's one of the things I struggle with, it's us. And when we do that, what we're essentially telling is, God, yeah, I don't want you. I don't want the God. I want the God. I want the, the throne, not the God on the throne. Like, God, get off my throne is essentially what we're telling him when we do that. But the truth of the gospel is the fact that, look, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Like, we are hopelessly drowning in an ocean of our own sin and there is absolutely nothing that we can do or save ourselves and we all are in desperate need of a savior jesus christ and he is the only one that can truly save us and so this expert in the law he knows so much about the law again more than most anybody else around but in all of his knowledge of the law he completely misses the whole point the point of the law the point of the bible which is to show us look we can't save ourselves there's nothing that we can do we cannot save ourselves and to point us in our need the direction of a savior who can save us that's the whole point of it but he completely missed it but the the fact that this dude missed that isn't the worst thing about this guy this expert of the law the worst thing about this guy is the fact that he's asking this question in order to trap jesus like he's got this ulterior motive he is he is trying to take jesus down why because he hates him he doesn't want Jesus to, to you know, get all of this attention. He's, he's going around, Jesus is going around uh, forgiving sins, which only God can do. So he's claiming to be God. He's doing, performing all of these miracles. He's teaching these things that are completely out there, completely countercultural to like any, the things that they believe, the things that they know. And, and it's just rocking their world. So all of these religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the expert in the law, you see it all throughout the Gospels. These guys are doing everything they can to get Jesus out of there. And so one of the ways they would do this is they go in a public arena where they see Jesus and they would try to ask him something, try to knock him off in order to make him look like a fool or make him look like a hypocrite or a false teacher. And so that's what this guy is doing in this moment. And he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then check out what Jesus' response is in verse 26. It says, what is written in the law? This is Jesus. What is written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly. This is Jesus. He told him, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. So this guy was trying to trap Jesus with a question, intentionally. He's trying to trap them with his question, trying to make him look like a fool with this question or a hypocrite or false teacher. But in the process of trying to trap Jesus with this question, Jesus in turn has flipped this question upside down on its head, faced it towards him, and now he's pretty much forced this guy to be able to, to, to answer this. Because you've got to remember, contextually, this guy is an expert in the law. 
So all of a sudden, it's like, okay, well, hey, you're the expert of the law is essentially what Jesus is saying. You're the expert in the law. All these people are around him. So tell us, what, the, what does the law say? Since you're the expert. And now this guy's like, whoa, wait a second. His head is probably spinning like, wait, I thought this through. I thought this was a great plan. Now all of a sudden, like, I'm the one that's on the spot. What is going on? I'm having like an out-of-body experience right here. And so he's forced to answer this question. But here's the thing. He answers it, and he answers it correctly. He says, to love God, essentially love God, with everything that you have, everything that you are perfectly, 100% of the time, every second of your life. And to love your neighbor perfectly every second of your life with absolutely no selfishness whatsoever. So raise your hand if you've ever done that. Anybody ever, in here ever done that? Raise your hand if you've ever done that. Love God perfectly and love the people around you perfectly with absolutely no selfishness whatsoever, not even a selfish thought, even one day. No. Oh. Why? Because, man, we are sinful, selfish people. We are completely incapable. We can, I mean, if you didn't know that, we, I mean, this proves it to us. We are completely incapable of loving God perfectly, 100% of the time, and loving the people around us with no selfishness whatsoever, 100% of the time. We can't even do it one day. And see, that's the point. That's why Jesus then says, do this and you will live. What he's trying to get this dude to understand is like, look, man, there is nothing that you can do. And all your knowledge of the law, there's absolutely nothing that you or anybody else can do to save yourself. It is impossible. He's getting this guy to a point where he's forced to wrestle with the truth and think about it for himself. But one of the sad, real, one of the sad things about this story is the fact that this dude knew the answer. Like he's an expert of the law and he just proved it right here. Like this dude was able to answer this question on the spot and it wasn't like he had like a little pocket Bible or something in his back pocket right here. And he pulled it out like, hold on just a second. Let me, let me flip through this really quick. All right. First of all, those scriptures aren't even together. They're in separate places. Second of all, he didn't have the scripture with him. He wasn't carrying that around with him. He had it memorized. This dude on the spot was able to sift through all these different laws in his mind from memory, take two different verses, put them together, and give him the perfect answer, which Jesus, the God of the universe, said, that's right. Right there on the spot. He knew the answer. He had it memorized. But here's the thing. He didn't want to accept it. He didn't want to accept the fact that there was absolutely nothing that he could do to save himself, which is why this text then says, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus this. He asked him another question. And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So this guy in this scene, he's trying to make Jesus look like a fool trying to just you know, knock him off his feet, make him look like a fool. And the process, this trap that he set up for Jesus with this, this question has been turned, flipped upside down on him. Jesus has now trapped him with the very question he was trying to trap Jesus with. And this dude's head is like spinning, like what in the world is going on? Probably like an out-of-body experience, like this is crazy. I'm never gonna try to challenge this guy out in public again because he just doesn't want to make good, you know, may look like a fool in public himself. And so now he's forced to answer this this question, and he's doing something that a lot of us do whenever we're forced with the truth, or, or, or we see the truth, and, and we're forced to kind of deal with it, and we don't want to. We're just in this position where, like, you know what? I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to think about this. I, you know, no, that's not true. I'm not going to accept that. What happens is we start backpedaling a little bit, right? 
where we start kind of backpedaling and uh, uh, we start doing different things trying to get away from the situation. And one of the things that we do is we'll try to ask another question. We're trying to deflect is what we're doing. And so we try to act another, ask another question so that we can kind of get out of this, get the attention off us. And that's what this dude does in this scene. He asks another question. He says, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? He's trying to get out of this situation, trying to wiggle his way free. But here's the thing. Jesus loves this guy. And he's not going to let him escape that easy. He's not going to let him just kind of wiggle his way out of this question and this, this, uh, the truth that easily. And so he's bringing this guy to a point, again, where he can wrestle with the truth for himself. What he does with that truth, how he responds to that is up to him. Jesus isn't going to force him to respond a certain way, but he is going to get him to a point where he is forced to see the truth, wrestle it with it for himself. And so he essentially says, okay, you want to know who your neighbor is? I'll tell you. And then on top of that, I'm going to tell you the kind of love that I'm talking about. And this is what he says. He starts telling a story. Check it out. This is Luke chapter 10, verse 30. So Jesus took up the question, meaning he's answering this guy's question. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. The priest, a priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. So Jesus answers this man's question, who is my neighbor, by telling a story. And it's a story about a man that went from Jerusalem to Jericho. And something that we have to understand about this, this route from Jerusalem to Jericho is this isn't just like a really quick, you know, just like round the corner type of journey that's really easy to walk. This is a 17-mile journey. And it's 3,000 feet worth of descent for 17 miles. So it's a very long, somewhat rigorous journey, not an easy journey whatsoever. And so this man is going along this journey, this route from Jerusalem to Jericho. Something else we've got to understand about that route is it's very dangerous. There were a lot of different places where robbers and thieves would hide out and wait intentionally for somebody to come by so they could jump out and they could rob them. You know, four or five guys against like one guy. And that's what happens in this story. This guy is somewhere on that route. We don't know where it, where it is, this 17-mile stretch. So it's probably safe to say maybe somewhere in the middle. So he's probably got about seven to 10 miles left to go. These people jump out. They rob him. This is out in the middle of the desert. There's probably nobody else around so they can get away with this and they rob this guy they take everything that he has there's a good chance they even took the clothes off of his back so there's a good chance this dude is naked he's just laying there in the baking hot sun maybe like a loincloth type deal but possibly naked staying out there and he is he has been beaten to within an inch of his life this man is dying he is in the process of dying he is going to die if someone does not stop and help him and again, if he's somewhere in the middle of that journey, he's still got seven to 10 miles of rigorous road to go. There is no way that he can get there on his own out in the middle of the desert with nothing, no one to help him. 
And so he's probably just desperately thinking and praying, like, please, I hope someone comes along. I hope someone and stops and, and like helps me because if they don't, I am a goner. I am not going to make it. I am going to die. This is the end for me if someone doesn't stop and help me. And so as Jesus is telling this story, he mentions three different people. And one of the people that he mentions, the first one, is a priest. And so as this priest is coming along and uh, he sees this man, what, what does he do? Does he stop and help him? No. He keeps on going. And the text tells us he doesn't just like go past this guy. He actually like goes to the other side. So in other words, this man is over here. He, this priest sees this guy and he's like, no, I'm going to get way over here. I don't even want to have anything to do this. If I could keep on going farther away from this man, I would, but I got to stay on this path. So I'm just going to go on the outskirts of this path and keep on going this way. Act like this guy doesn't even exist. And there's probably a lot of excuses that a lot of us would make up too that can somewhat make sense. Like maybe he sees the guy and he's like, oh, wow, what's going on up there? You know, man, that might be a trap. Like, I, I don't want to go up there because what if that guy's, what if they, they, they beat up that guy and he's bait and they're just waiting for somebody else to come along that has more stuff so they can rob him? Like, I don't know. So maybe that's kind of an excuse that he's, that he's using. Or maybe he's like, you know what? I, I don't have time. Like, he's a priest, so he's like, hey, man, I got I to gotta go preach. I, I don't have time to help this guy. I got to go preach. I got a meeting, you know. I got I to gotta go see this person, my family, whatever. Or, you know, I'm, a, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what to do. I can't help this guy. That's, you know, I, I just don't have time. And to be honest, I really don't care. I really don't care. We don't know what the excuse was. Probably, honestly, a combination of all of it. And also, he probably lied to himself and said, you know what? I bet another person back there will probably help this guy. I'm just not going to worry about it. So he goes along the outskirts of the, the road here so that he doesn't even have to be affiliated with him at all and keeps on going, does absolutely nothing. And then the second guy that comes along in this story, verse 20, 32, we see him. He's, he's a Levite. And so this man, you think about like, you know, a really prestigious man in the church. So this man comes along and what does he do? The exact same thing. He, he goes past him, but again, he does the same thing where he goes to the outskirts of this road so that he doesn't even have to like, be affiliated with this guy at all. He doesn't even want to have to like, you know, look at him. He just goes by probably using these same crazy excuses like, oh, I don't have time. I don't know what to do. I'm not a doctor. What if it's, you know, what if it's a trap? All these crazy excuses. And then ultimately, too, probably I just don't really care. Maybe somebody else will help him. And he goes by. And it's really easy, as we read this story about these two guys, and as we think about them, it's really easy for us to look at them and to point our finger in judgment at them. And to say, man, how in the world could you do that? Like, how could these guys just pass by this dude that is literally about to die? Like, he has nobody there. That, I mean, it's the middle of the desert. I mean, why in the world would you even think that a lot of other people are going to come up? This is the middle of the desert on a 17-mile trail. Like, dude, you, somebody needs to help this guy but they do nothing. And it's so easy for us to point our finger and judgment, but what we should be doing instead of judging them is looking in the mirror and asking ourselves, man, how often do I do the same thing? How often do I make excuses and give myself cop-outs, give myself easy outs for you know, why I can't show love, compassion, and mercy to the people around me? Because guys, we do that all 
of the time. And as we read this story and we think about these two men, the priest and the Levite, that's what we should be doing is looking inside, looking in the mirror and asking ourselves that question, how often do I do the same thing? Because if we're honest with ourselves, helping other people, it really requires that we get outside of our comfort zone, doesn't it? And not just a little bit, like a lot of times when we honestly want to help somebody, it requires that we step way outside of our comfort zone. And it requires oftentimes that we get a little messy. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the last sermon. Jesus meets us in the middle of the mess. He calls us to meet others in the middle of their mess. So it requires us oftentimes to get a little messy. It requires us to look past our wants, our desires, our, our time schedules, to the other people around us, to be other fo- others focused. But more than anything, it requires us to die of our sinful selfishness so that we can in turn show limitless love and compassion with absolutely no strings attached whatsoever. Not for a pat on the back, not to make yourself look good, just to show love, just to show love. And that's exactly what this third man in this story does. He shows limitless love to this person with no strings attached. But there's something incredible about this man. And it's not so much the fact that he shows this limitless love and compassion. That's absolutely mind-blowing. That is incredible in and of itself. But that's not the most incredible thing about this man. And it's not the fact that he took time and energy, because this took a lot of time. Like when he stopped to help this guy in this story, it's not like this is a really quick, easy thing. Like, you know, a couple of seconds, I'm going to help this guy. He stopped. He took a lot of time took a lot of energy, very physically grueling, the things that he, he did to help this man. And it also took money. It took a lot from him. But here's the thing, that still isn't the most amazing thing about this guy. More than anything else, what's so mind-blowing about this guy is the fact that this dude was a Samaritan. And what we have to understand is Samaritans were literally, like they were like enemies, I mean arch enemies of, of the Jews. These people hated each other with a passion, and not just like a little bit of hate. It's like, I wish you were dead, and I'm not kidding. I literally wish you were dead. Like, these guys hated each other with a passion, and that's why this is, this is just so extreme. So when, when Jesus is telling this story, we got to remember that he's telling this story to a group of Jews, and, and so when Jesus tells this story to a group of Jews, for one, if you were to, to, were to you know, reference a Samaritan and, and you know, like the word good or something good that they did, that alone is crazy. In their mind, they would have been like, no, that doesn't happen, dude. Good Samaritan, like, like this dude did something good. That, there's no way. That is completely countercultural to everything that we know. There is no good Samaritan. That doesn't happen. You've crossed the line, dude. But then as he's telling this story, and he says that a priest and a Levite passed by, did absolutely nothing. But the Samaritan is the one that stopped and did this. He's the hero of the story. They're essentially saying, and probably even saying out loud as Jesus is saying, whoa, dude, uh-uh. You, just, you didn't just pass the line. You sprinted past the line. That does not happen. Like Samaritans do not do that kind of stuff. They are our enemies. They are horrible people. Absolutely not. That would never happen. You went way past the line. And what we have to understand, we, we got to kind of wrap our heads around this because if we miss that, then we're going to miss how powerful this story is. Because if we were to put this in like today's terms, 2018 terms, what this story would look like is something like this. So picture Morganton, North Carolina. Somebody has gotten robbed and beaten up somewhere in Morganton, North Carolina, maybe like a back road somewhere. 
Maybe it's like, you know, in the middle of winter time, and so it's really cold. It's, it's the middle of the night too, so nobody's gonna see this guy. It's not a well-traveled road. So this dude, if he does not get help, he is going to die. He's beaten up, he's left for dead, and he's gonna die. And then all of a sudden, a well-known pastor in the area, in Morganton, North Carolina, very well-respected, well-respected church, he drives up, he sees this guy, and not only does he just keep on going past, he veers off as far away as possible, probably even out of the road a little bit, to get away from this guy, as far, as far away as possible from this guy. And then the next guy that comes up is a guy that's a really well-known, really well-respected guy in a church. He's the kind of guy that, you know, everybody knows. It's almost like cheers for a church. He's the dude that, like, everybody else knows his name. He's extremely well-respected. Um, he, uh, you know, he's, he's got this big old Bible, big old, you know, gold-plated cross, and he teaches a Sunday school class or something, you know? He's that kind of guy. He comes up. He sees this dude. And what does he do? He just keeps on going. But not only does he pass by, he gets as far away. Like, I don't even want to have anything to do with this. Don't want to associate myself with this at all. And then a third person comes up. And this guy is a guy that's involved with a terrorist group, ISIS. That makes you a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? That's the point. That's the point. And this guy from ISIS, nobody, he would never do that. He goes up. And he stops and he helps this guy that's a Christian and he shows him love and compassion when nobody else would. And even as we think about this, as I was thinking about that, I was like, what? This, that would never happen. And that's the point. These Jews in this situation, when they're hearing this from the lips of Jesus, that's what they're thinking. This would never happen. There is no way that this guy would ever do that. But the thing is, the Samaritan, he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just stop by, you know, going up, stopping, helping this guy on the side of the road. His love, his compassion for this guy just keeps on going because he not only stops to check on this guy, but then he stops to bandage his wounds. And if you're thinking about this, again, there's a good chance this guy is naked and he's probably bleeding a lot. He's got like several cuts and gashes and blood. So this guy, the text tells us, he bandages him. So what does that require? He's probably having to get out different band, different things that he has, maybe even tear part of his clothes off. It's not like he's a doctor and he has all this different medical equipment with him, using what he has, and he has to go up and he's got to get messy. He's got to touch this man and his blood and his wounds, and he's cleaning them off, taking some of his water that he has for his journey for himself to clean this man off, give him some water, save a little for himself maybe, but cleaning him off. Then he takes this man, and after he cleans him, what does he do? He picks this man up, because he's half dead, he probably can't even stand. Picks this man up, kind of like an infant, picks him up, puts him on his animal, possibly like a donkey. And it might have been something that he was riding through this journey, rigorous 17-mile journey. We complain when we have to walk over about a mile. 17 miles. So there's a chance that, you know, he may have been riding this animal. Picks this man up, he puts him on his animal. And then the rest of the journey, 10 miles, 7 miles, we don't know, several miles, he walks with this man. And then he gets to this town, 
And if he had just taken this man when he got to the town and he had stopped somewhere and said, hey, this guy needs a lot of help. He's really been beaten so badly, half to death. He, just, he really needs some attention. Can you help him? If he had stopped and done that, just placed him somewhere with somebody that could care for him and kept on going, if this story stopped there, that would have been mind-blowing enough. That would have completely like shattered comfort zones. I mean, talking about, again, like think about elite, like somebody from ISIS stopping and doing this and helping this person, taking him, bandaging him up, taking him to safety all these miles away and then making sure that he's okay and someone's gonna take care of him. That would have been mind-blowing enough. But this man's limitless love continues to go on. He takes him to an end. And he gets to this end. The next day he pays two denarii. Two denarii, that's two days wages. Two days wages that this man paid for this guy to stay in an end. And he takes him in the end. And then what does he do? Did he just leave him there? No. He cares for this man. All through the night, he cares for this man. He takes care of him. He probably bandages his wounds again. He probably helps like to feed him. He's, probably, he's half dead, so he probably can't even feed himself. So I imagine he's probably helping this guy hold him up with one hand and actually feeding him, caring for him, helping him to drink because he probably can't even really drink barely on his own. He's caring for this man all through the night. And then after that, once this man is okay and he's resting, he's got food, his bandages have been taken care of, he takes care of him through the night, he knows he's going to be all right. He tells him to stay there. He goes up to the innkeeper and he says, look, I've got to go away for a little while. I'm going to come back. But no matter what this man needs, take care of him. I don't care what you have to do. I don't care how much it costs, the materials that are needed. I don't care if you have to get a doctor in here to help him. I don't care how long he stays here, how many days or how many weeks. I will pay for all of it. I'll pay for every single penny. And notice in this story, this Samaritan never expects anything in return. Never expects a pat on the back. He probably never got a pat on the back. They probably never knew his name. There's a very good chance this man that he helped, he never even saw him again. He may have come back and he was already gone. Never got a thanks. Probably never even knew him. If he was unconscious the whole time, never even saw him possibly. He never asked for anything in return. And so after Jesus tells this story to this guy, he looks up to this expert in the law and he asks him a question. Check out what he asks him. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law said this, the one who showed mercy to him, he said. So notice this guy can't even say the word Samaritan. Like he's like, I don't even want to accept that it was a Samaritan. I'm not even going to say the word Samaritan. So he just says the one who showed him mercy. But here's the thing. As much as this dude hates Samaritans, as much as he hates thinking about, wow, this dude, like, I mean, the worst dude in his mind in the world, like this dude that I wish was dead, I, he still cannot deny the limitless love and compassion that this man showed with no strings attached. As much as he hates him, he is his enemy he still can't deny the love and the compassion that this man showed. And then Jesus tells this man, along with everybody else that was there to hear this story, along with us as the, the readers and the hearers of this today, this, he says, go and do the same. He tells every single one of us, go and do the same. Show limitless love. 
to the people that you come into contact with, regardless of race, regardless of what they've done in their past, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their socioeconomic status, what they make, their job, anything like that, regardless of whether or not they like you or they hate you, go and do the same. Show limitless love to the people that you come into contact with. And it begs this question, like, why? Why would Jesus ask us to do something so incredible? I mean, especially to our enemies and people that we hate and people of different, you know, uh, beliefs and stuff. Why would he ask us to do this? And the reason is because Jesus first showed us limitless love. See, what we have to understand is this this, this story of the Good Samaritan, it actually paints a couple different pictures for us. For one, it's kind of the more obvious picture that he paints, which is the fact that we're called to, to model our life after the Good Samaritan. Loving on other people limitlessly and, and following our life, modeling our life after him as our example. That's one of the pictures that it paints. It's more obvious. But the second picture that this story paints is really, it, it's the reason that we're called to model our life after the Good Samaritan. But more importantly, it's the reason that we have the opportunity to model our life after the Good Samaritan. And, and that's the fact that the Good Samaritan is really just a, a picture a representation of the greater Samaritan, which is Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus Christ is the greater Samaritan, then it kind of begs the question, well, who does the other man represent that was beaten half dead and that had no hope and was going to die? That's you. And that's me. We are the guy that was left for dead, hopeless, with absolutely no salvation, no hope whatsoever. We had been robbed of our own identity, our very identity as children of God by the sin that lives inside of us and eats us away, killing us from the inside out. But then God showed his scandalous love, his scandalous grace on the cross where he reached out into our filth and bought our freedom with his own life. And something we have to understand too is not only does Jesus tell us how much he loves us in his word, and you see that so many pictures of this in the word. You think of John 3, 16, it says, does it say God loves us? So, so God loved the world? Say God so loves the world. So his word tells us he loves us so much, not just a little bit, I love you so much. But not only does Jesus tell us how much he loves us in his word, But then he also, just before he died, he reached out his hands to display how much he loves us, to show us this much, this much. Jesus says to every single one of us, regardless of your race, regardless of your gender, regardless of your past, what you have or have not done, regardless of your socioeconomic class, regardless of whether you love him or hate him, I love you this Every single one of you. But the measure of his love doesn't just stop there, though. That's what's so incredible. His love continues to go on because not only did he die in our place to buy us our salvation, but then he also extends us the offer, the choice, to accept his limitless gift of love, which we call grace. He doesn't force it on us. He gives us the choice. He gives us the offer, the, the option. He invites us to respond and to accept it. 
And if you're here today, you've never accepted that gift of grace, the gift of love from Jesus that we call grace, then, and you're wondering, well, how do I accept that? What do I do? How do I respond to this? We can see in the book of Acts, there's a couple of main responses. It says uh, to repent and also to be baptized. And that word repentance, all it means is just turn away from any of those makeshift functional saviors, those, those idols, the things that we put up on a pedestal in the place of Jesus that we were talking about a little while ago, and simply turn to Jesus as the only Lord, the only Savior of our life. And not in perfection. There's no perfect people. I am definitely not perfect. I'll tell you that right now. Not in perfection, but just simply in trust and in obedience. And then to be baptized. As a public display of, of what we have done, it's almost like with the, uh, with the repentance, I've, I've referenced it as a wedding ceremony. That's like the vows that we say to Jesus when we're giving our life to him. And then the, the baptism is almost like the ring where we're signifying that I belong to Jesus. And so if you've never done that, then first off, I, I, wanna, I wanna challenge you and encourage you, man, don't wait. Don't wait to respond to him. He loves you so much. It's not about what you have done or what you can do. It's about what he has done in your place and just responding to his free gift of grace. So if you've never done that, I'd love to just encourage you to do that. We're gonna have a prayer team up here in just a moment. They're gonna be to my left, your right. And uh, so if you're responding, even right now where you're sitting, just please, there's something so powerful about going and, and saying that to someone and getting prayer and discipleship. We'd love to talk to you. If, if you've got any questions, we'd love to just, not that we have all the answers, but we would love to be able to talk through those, those questions with you and just kind of wrestle with those with you. If you're here today, if you are a Christian and you're struggling, maybe you've backslid or, or there's something else that you're struggling with, we'd love to pray with you. But if you're a Christian, you're, you're repentant Christian, meaning that you're not perfect, but you're honestly living your life for Christ, not in perfection, but in obedience and in trust then here in a moment, you're going to have the opportunity to take communion with us. Well, we can remember what the greater Samaritan did for us in our place on the cross by buying our redemption with his own life. And we don't try to dictate how you do this. There's no time frames with this. You're not going to have an usher that comes up to your aisle and says, okay, now it's time for you to go. This is between you and Jesus. Just this intimate moment between you and Jesus where you remember what he's done and you just just kind of renewing your vows to him, saying, Jesus, I am all yours. The filth, the muck, the struggles, everything I have, I'm all yours. And so the, uh, here in just a moment, I'm gonna invite the elders, the worship team, the prayer team. They're gonna go up first. And after they go up, then you guys can come up right after them. So I'm gonna pray. The altar is open. Again, the prayer team will be up here in just a moment. Whatever God is putting on your heart, you respond. And as we do this, just remember what he's done for us. Father, we thank you so much for your free gift of limitless love that we call grace. And I pray that you just help us to remember how much you love us, what you've done for us, the fact that we, just like this man in this story that was left for dead, absolutely no hope, that we were in this situation, maybe some of us even in that situation right now, and I pray that you help to, us to remember that you are that greater Samaritan that reached into our muck, into our mess, and pulled us out. And we didn't deserve it. I thank you so much for your limitless love, for your grace for us, Jesus. I pray that if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you, that hasn't responded to your gospel, I pray right now that you would give them that gift, that miracle of salvation right here, right now. And I pray for the rest of us that do know you, that we would remember what you've done for us and then as we leave here 
we would just be in this deeper, more intimate relationship with you, following you all the more. We love you, Jesus. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Guys, first off, I just want to say thank you for joining us today for the sermon. And uh, whether you're somebody that's come to our church or you're somebody that lives locally, you go to another church, maybe you don't even live here. Um, I just want I just want to say first and foremost, thank you for joining us. And uh, I, I want to encourage you to, to respond in some way today because, you know, when we hear a sermon, when we read the Bible, when we, um, whatever it may, may be, the point of that is, um, for God to speak to us in some way, shape, or form. And so if you are a Christian, um, you've been a seasoned Christian, you know the Lord already, then the way that we can respond is just by you know, asking Him, God, what do you want me to do with the convictions that you're giving me uh, based on this sermon, the way that you're speaking to me, what do you want me to do? And then respond to that. Maybe it's an area of your life that you've been holding on to um, and, and you haven't been giving it to Him. But I want to encourage you to give that to Him and step out in faith. Or maybe if it's um, you know, some unbelief that you've had and, and God has really convicted you of some things. Um, you know, whatever it may be for you, it's different for everyone. I want to encourage you to respond to God and, and step in His direction. And, and the other thing too is if, if you are somebody that maybe you've listened to this and you've never responded to that gospel message, you've never been, been impacted by that gospel message, but now something is happening, God is kind of stirring in your heart and in your mind a little bit, then I want to encourage you to step out in faith, respond to that gospel message. And throughout the book of Acts, um, Acts tells us our history as a church. Uh, it shows us that you know, what that response looks like. So number one is to repent. And this word repent, all that means is just to turn from you know, our sinful ways, our sinful desires, you know, turn from making ourself God and all these other things in life God, and turn to God and just give Him our life. Um, and, and then on top of that response, after the repentance, there comes something else. It's called baptism. And, and baptism is so key. It's so important. It's seen all throughout um, that book and Acts and, and the importance and significance of it. Um, it's this symbol of death to the old self and, and then um, birth to uh, this new life in Christ. And we're, 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 uh, we die with Christ to the old self and we are raised with Christ to, to walk in this new life. And it's a command from Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if you have made that commitment to Christ, if you have stepped out um, and you are wanting to follow Christ, then I want to encourage you to take that next step and be baptized somewhere. Whether it's if you have a local church that you want to go be baptized at, I encourage you to do that. Um, if you don't have a church, we would love to be able to celebrate that with you um, here. But I encourage you first and foremost to do that, to, to talk with someone, um, to get counsel on what this means, to seek discipleship as well. So. Um, I encourage you to do those things. We would love to talk with you. We are praying for you. I want you to know that you are loved and you are prayed for. So if you're ready to take that next step in your relationship with Christ, um, and if you want to take that next step with us, then we, are, we, we would welcome you with open arms. And so there's some links that we're going to provide below for you. Uh, please check that out. Um, and again, if you, if you have any prayer requests, um, please contact us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. And we're excited about taking this next step with you.